is so good to see you guys here this weekend as we kick off this brand new series, Hashtag Amen. It is a series on prayer. Uh, it's a two-week series, and uh, this weekend I'm going to talk about why we need to talk to God. Next weekend, I'm going to talk about why we need to listen to God. Let's see, you get to participate too, because sandwiched between the two weekends, starting Friday night at 4 o'clock, going to Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock, we're going to be having a 24-hour prayer vigil. We've had these in the past. This is where all of our campuses are open for 24 hours, and we ask you to show up and pray. In fact, we ask you to go to our website or to our app. There's actually an hour time slot that you can sign up to be here. And I know what some of you are thinking, Mike, if I prayed for an hour, God would faint. I mean, he would just be shocked, right? And I know for some of you, you're new in your faith, you're new on the Christian journey, the idea of praying for an hour, I get it. My ADD, that's not the way I work. But you know what you can do? You can walk around. You can walk around the facility and you may go by an office and say, I want to pray for this staff person. Or I want to pray for the children that meet in this classroom. Or maybe you just take God's word and you just read it. But we're going to give you an opportunity to really get involved because everyone at all of our campuses this weekend, you received one of these cards. And if you will take the time before you leave, if you will list on here what your prayer requests are, you can put your name on it. You can leave it off. It doesn't matter to us. But what you may be praying for a job right now. You may be praying for a wayward child right now. Your marriage may be on the rocks. I don't know. I don't really care. It may be a health issue. But we are going to be praying for you 24 hours next week from 4 o'clock on Friday to 4 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. You can drop these in the buckets as you leave at all of our campuses. I think that God is going to show up. I think that he's going to move in a mighty way because I tell you, great things happen when we pray. In fact, this is a true story, by the way. A little boy went in to see his dad and he said, Dad, I want a baby brother. And dad said, well, you know what? If you want a baby brother, you should probably pray about it. See what happens. So the little boy, he prays for a month, no baby brother. So he goes to dad and he says, I don't get this prayer thing. I've been praying for a month. I don't see a baby brother. And dad said, well, you can't just quit praying. You got to keep praying. So he prays for another month, nothing. Prays for a third month, no baby brother. Gives up. He's like, just like us. Obviously, prayer doesn't work. God's not answering my prayer. About six months later, his dad picks him up from school, but instead of taking him home, he takes him by the hospital. He's like, Dad, why are we going to the hospital? Takes him inside, go to a room. There's mom sitting there in a chair in the corner holding a little baby. And he says, son, meet your baby brother. And he is so excited. And about that time, a nurse walks in carrying another baby. And he looks and says, meet your second baby brother. And he's I have two new baby brothers. About that time, a nurse walked in with a third baby. Meet your third baby brother. And they're just celebrating. And dad, you know how dads can be smug, kind of told you so, you know. Says, son, aren't you glad you did what I told you? Aren't you glad you prayed? He said, yes, sir, dad. But aren't you glad I quit after three months? See, that's how I say. Don't you wish that it was that instant, right? Don't you wish that our prayers were that effective? But sometimes because they're not, we give up. We think prayer doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change anything. But listen to this verse, Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So here's my question. Why would Jesus tell us to always pray if it doesn't work? Why would he say always pray if it, if it doesn't matter, if it doesn't really change things? And why would he tell us not to give up when we're praying for something if we're just wasting our time? But I think an even better question to think about is this. Why did Jesus pray? 
I mean, if you read through the Gospels, and when I say the Gospels, I'm referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the account of the life of Jesus on this earth. You will see over and over where Jesus, maybe just the weight of the ministry, or, or the pressing needs around him, often he would say, I got to get away. I got to get away from the crowds. I got to get away from you disciples. I just need to spend some time with the Father by myself so I can talk to him. And he would go and he would pray. But here's the question. Why did Jesus pray? I mean, have you ever thought about that? He is God, which means in some kind of sick way, he's like he's talking to himself, right? So why did he pray? We know a lot of people, if you ask them that question, they'll say, well, Jesus prayed because he wanted to be an example to us. I don't think Jesus did anything just to be an example to us. I, I think Jesus is a great example to us. Don't get me wrong. But I think that when Jesus came to this earth, Jesus was just being Jesus. Jesus was just trying to be himself. He, was, he, he, he didn't act in a certain way. He, he just lived his life a certain way, which brings us back to the question, why did Jesus pray? Well, this may shock you, but I think that Jesus prayed because he needed to pray. And again, we go back to the question, why would Jesus, who is God, need to pray? Well, again, we got to remember from a theological perspective that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he set aside his divinity, remember? He picked up his humanity. John talked about this in John chapter 1, about the word became flesh, and he said, he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. It's the doctrine of the incarnation, God becoming man. Literally, the incarnation, it means God in flesh. God became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He became a human, and as a human, just like you and me, as a human, as a person on this earth, Jesus needed the guidance. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, as a human, he needed to talk to the Father. And guess what? He needed to hear the voice of the Father. In fact, one time after Jesus was teaching, the crowds were hanging around afterwards and they were gushing all over him, telling him about he's the greatest teacher of all time. They'd never heard anything like it. And without even batting an eye, Jesus responded, hey, just so you know, I don't say anything unless I hear it from the Father first. So understand, when Jesus was on this earth, he needed to hear the voice of the Father. And if Jesus, when he on this earth, if he needed to pray, if he needed to talk to the Father, if he needed to hear from the Father, if he needed to pray, is it just a slight remote possibility? Is it just a small chance that maybe as Christians, we should be praying also? Which brings up another question. Why don't we? I mean, if you, I bet if you calculated the time you spent watching TV this week, social media this week, playing golf this week, and you compare that to the time that you actually spent talking and listening to the Father, I guarantee you every one of us would be embarrassed. Why don't we pray? Why is it not a priority for us? I think there's several reasons. One, I think it's just complacency. I'll be honest with you. I think that we've had laws passed. I think we've had judges appointed. I think we've had officials elected in our country because as Christians, we didn't pray. And you know why we didn't pray? We didn't care. Whatever the issue was, we thought, that doesn't really matter to me. And so we were just complacent. But let me ask you a question. Can you imagine if every Christian in America was praying for God to do something in our country? You think it would make a difference? Can you imagine if every Christian, we have about 15,000 people who consider Hope Community Church home. Can you imagine if 15,000 Christians who consider Hope Community Church home. Can you imagine if they were praying for God to do something in our church, do you think it would make a difference? Do you know why we don't? We're complacent. What do we need to pray for? We show up, we got nice buildings, we got nice music, we got nice children's ministry, we got coffee. 
What do I need to pray for? In fact, if I pray for God to bless our church, more people might show up. That means worse parking, worse seats, longer time to get my coffee. I like it the way it is. I'm not going to pray about anything. Right? We just get complacent. Like it, you know. Here's another one. Unbelief. You see, we don't really believe that when we pray, it actually changes anything. I'm telling you, if we really believe that 10 minutes in prayer would accomplish more than 10 minutes on Facebook, or 10 minutes on Instagram, I'm telling you, if we believe that, we would pray. But we don't really believe that our time invested in prayer will change things. Here's the third reason we don't pray, just discouragement. I mean, we have something on our heart, we need a job, it's a financial situation, it's a health issue, it's a family issue, it's a relationship issue, it's a marriage, so we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And then we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And then we pray some more. And it doesn't turn out the way we wanted it to turn out. And so we get discouraged and we think, why even bother? You know, I mean, we've all been there, haven't we been there? Haven't you prayed so much for something that after a while, like, God knows. If he wants to do anything about it, he'll do something. I, I will never forget, Lord, I, for years, I pray for one specific thing. And after years, I'm like, God, listen, I ain't praying anymore. So one night, Lord, I were in bed, and we were getting ready to go to sleep. And she said, you want to pray? And I'm like, nah. Nah, God knows. If he wants to do something about it, he'll do something about it. So you're not the exception, see? We just get to that point in our lives. But this weekend, I want to talk about a couple of reasons of why we should pray. And these reasons are directly related to two attributes of God. And when I say attribute, I'm talking about God's character traits. And I'm sharing these character traits with you because I believe that these two attributes should cause us to want to pray. But what's interesting is these two attributes that we're going to talk about, they have become so twisted in our minds. They become so twisted and convoluted by our theological discussions. The very attributes that should cause us to pray are attributes that actually keep us from praying. So let's get a better understanding of God, who he is, these two attributes, and let's see if it doesn't change our perspective on prayer. Pretty simple message. The first character trait that I want to talk about or attribute of God is the sovereignty of God. And let me just give you a definition of sovereignty. God is the supreme ruler of the universe. We just talked about this in our Pentateuch series. Why did God pick Abraham? He's God. He's sovereign. He can do anything he wants. Why did God save Noah? He's God. He's sovereign. He can do anything he wants. God is sovereign. He's the supreme rule of the universe. He can do anything he wants to do. But let me show you how we've twisted this truth when it comes to prayer. We assume that since God is the supreme being of the universe, and that since God can do whatever he wants to do, regardless of what I think, why do I even bother? I mean, God's got a will, God's got a plan. Hey, listen, it's gonna take priority and precedence every single time. It's not really open for negotiations and it all sounds very logical. If God wants it to happen, it's gonna happen. If he doesn't want it to happen, it's not gonna happen. Here's the problem, that's just not true. In fact, let me just explain something to you about God's will that maybe will help you understand this concept. The word will actually means desire. So when you think about God's will, it's really God's desire. For example, if you have a will, what you're saying is, this is my desire for my $9.42, how I want it to be spread out after I die. See, that's my desire. That's my will. Let me tell you what God's will is. Let me tell you what God's desire is. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So here's my question. Is everybody on the planet going to repent? Is everybody on the planet going to respond to the gospel 
of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for us on the cross so that by accepting that gift, this payment for our sins, we could actually be restored and reconciled back into a relationship with God. Is everybody on the planet going to accept that gift? Is everybody on the planet going to become a Christian? No. But is it God's desire? You better believe it. So why isn't everybody going to accept what Jesus did on the cross? Why aren't they going to turn to God if that's God's will, if that's God's desire? Well, it's because God, in his sovereignty, created us in his image. In other words, he created us like him. And since we are like God, and God has a will, we also have a will. It's one of our most prized gifts. It's called the freedom of choice. Which means this, if somebody chooses to reject God, understand, that's not God's wishes. That's not God's desire. It's that person's choice. It's that person's will. It's that person's desire to reject God. Now, this will sound very blunt. But if you go to hell when you die, it will not be because God sent you there. Because God has given us his son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross to give you a way not to have to go there, but you get to choose. If you go to hell when you die, it's because you made the decision to go to hell when you die. But understand that was never God's desire. Here's my point. Your desire, your will, is going to determine how far you go with God and this journey that he's taking you on. It's not God's desire. It's not, your, it's not God's will, it's about your desire and your will. See, your desire is going to determine how much you get from God. Your desire is gonna determine how spiritual and how godly your marriage is. Your desire is going to determine how spiritual and how godly your family is. Your desire is going to determine how much you accomplish for God in this lifetime. See, we know what God's desire is. His desire is to bring his kingdom to this earth. What did Jesus pray in the Lord's Prayer when he was teaching the disciples how to pray? He says, when you pray, say something like this. Your kingdom come, your will, your desire be done on earth as it ends in heaven. So we know what God's desire is, but I'm telling you, it's your desire. It's your will. It's your choice. Whether or not you're going to partner with God and how much you're going to be used in that process. Let me tell you something else. It's God's desire that your next door neighbor Repent and be reconciled back to God. It's God's desire that your coworker repent and be restored back into a relationship with God. But what may hinge on is, do you have the desire to get off your butt off the couch and turn off Netflix or quit watching ESPN to go next door to talk to your neighbor or maybe build a relationship with a coworker so you position yourself to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ? See, this is, this is what I know. God has an incredible plan. He has an incredible future for each one of us. I think if we could get a glimpse of the life that God actually planned for us, it would blow our minds. This is what it says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You got to understand, that's God's will for you. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like God's got your back? He wants to prosper you. He's not out to get you or to harm you. But that's his plan. That's his desire for each one of us. But here's the thing. Each one of us has to decide if we're going to submit to God's plan for our lives. It's up to us. We talked about this last week. You and I both get to decide, are we going to live in the circle of God's perfect plan, his perfect will, his perfect purpose for our lives? Or are we going to go rogue, right, and live outside the circle? It's up to us. Let me show you an interesting passage in Jeremiah 32. And I guarantee you, None of you ever remember re reading this passage. In fact, when I share it with you, you're going to think Mike's lost his mind. He's gone off the reservation. He got the wrong passage. So let me just read it to you, and then I'll explain to you why I read it to you. Uh, it's going to make no sense to you. But this is what it says. Jeremiah 32, verse 6. 
Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Remember, Jeremiah is a prophet. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle. So Hanamel would be Jeremiah's cousin. Is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth. Because as the nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Now just hang with me, okay? Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field in Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it is, now here's the key, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, your translation may say inherit it. He says, buy it for yourself. Verse 9, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel. Verse 10, I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed. Verse 11, I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy or the sealed deed, containing the terms and conditions as well as the unsealed copy in your translation it may say the open copy or the open deed now there are two rights that are talked about in these verses that are part of jewish custom there's the right of inheritance and then there's the right of redemption and this is what i think is going on in the story jeremiah's father obviously has passed away mom can't afford the land so Hanamel, his cousin, purchases the land from Jeremiah's mom. She needs the money. He's helping her out. But understand, Jeremiah had the right of inheritance. That means that when cousin Hanamel died, the property wasn't going to go to Hanamel's kids. The land was going to go back to Jeremiah. He had the right of inheritance. It's part of the Jewish custom. But understand, he also had the right of redemption, which means this. Jeremiah, at any point, had the right to buy the land back if he wanted to buy the land back. I mean, maybe things were paying really good as a prophet of God. I don't think so. But you know what? As a prophet, you'd probably be pretty good at picking the lottery. So maybe he won the lottery. I don't know. But whatever. Let's say he had the money and he wants to buy the land. He could buy it back any time he wanted to. Those were his rights. He had the right of inheritance and he had the right of redemption. But I also want you to notice there were two different kinds of deeds that were talked about in this passage. There was an open deed and there was a sealed deed. Now understand, the sealed deed was for the family that originally owned the land. For example, let's say the Lee family owned some land. Say it had been in our family for generations. It would say Lee on the sealed deal. But let's say that my grandpa was a beet farmer. And let's say his beet farm on the land went belly up and he had to sell the land. If he sold it to the Smiths, the Smiths' name would go not on the sealed deed, the lead name would stay there, it would go on the open deed. And if the Smiths got tired of the property and wanted to sell it to the Jones, their name would then go on the open deed, not the sealed deed, the lead name would stay there. And even if my grandpa sold the land, lost the land, as his grandson, I would always have the right of redemption because the Lee family had the sealed deal. In other words, if I could come up with the money, I could buy the land back anytime I wanted to. This was Jewish custom. Why am I boring you with all of this boring stuff? I have a reason. Psalm 24 verse 1 says this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You know what that means? God's name is on the sealed deed. Now hang with me. What did God give to Adam? Well, in Adam, he told Adam in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, I want you to have dominion. I want you to rule over the earth. In other words, he put Adam's name on the open deed to the earth. But guess what? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when they disobeyed, Satan's name was written on the open deed to the earth. Now, just hang with me. 
This explains, remember the temptations of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus went out in the wilderness for 40 days and then at the end Satan came to try to tempt him? Remember the third temptation? Let me read it to you, verse 8 of Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil took him, this is the third temptation, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Look what, look what Satan said, look at his offer. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Let me ask you a question maybe you've never thought about before. Where did Satan get it to give it away? He got, he, got, he, he got his name put on the deed when Adam sinned. And because his name was on the open deed, he's free to give it to whomever he wants to give it to. The only problem in this scenario is that Jesus is the son of the father whose name is on the original seal deed, which means that Jesus has the right of inheritance. But here's the great part. He also has the right of redemption. And Jesus exercised his option to redeem the earth and to take it back 2,000 years ago when like a lamb led to the slaughter, he voluntarily went to the cross and hung on the cross and shed his blood to redeem the earth and to buy it back. So he cost, it, the price was the purchase, uh, was purchased with the price of his blood. Now I said all of that to say this. Just like God gave stewardship of the earth to Adam, he put his name on the open deed. God gave stewardship of your life to you. So you're not your own. You're bought with a price. God's name's on the seal deed. But he gave the stewardship of your life to you. To you. Your name is on the open deed. That means that God, that God gave the stewardship of your family to you. God gave the stewardship of your marriage to you. God gave the stewardship of your family to you, but whether or not you walk in the principles of God is up to you. Whether or not you follow God is up to you. Whether or not you live in that circle of God's perfect plan and purpose and will for your life, that's up to you. But my point is this, God created you in his image and because God had a will, you have a will. And when you exercise your will and when you pray, you are talking to the supreme ruler of the universe who can and will act on your behalf. But you're gonna have to pray. Because if you don't pray, if you don't talk to the Father, what you want to see happen in your life and what you want to see happen in your family and what you want to see happen in the lives of your children and what you want to see happen in your career and your finances, maybe what you want to see happen in our church isn't is going to happen if you don't pray. So you've got to understand the sovereignty of God. Second, the immutability of God. It's an attribute of God. A definition would be this, God can't change. It's impossible for God to change. God was the same yesterday, today he will be the same forever. Malachi 3.6 says this, I, the Lord, do not change. And so understand, another characteristic or attribute of God is that God does not change. But see, this is how we've twisted this truth. We say God can't change. What's the use to pray? I mean, if it's God's will, it's gonna happen. If it's not God's will, it's not going to happen. But understand, immutability doesn't mean that God will not change his mind. It means that God cannot change his character. And the reason that God cannot change his character is because God is already perfect. And so if God changed his character, he would be less than perfect. So God can never change. How do you prove on perfection, right? But we twist this and say, God can't change, God won't change. So why should I even bother to pray? Now here's the problem. God changes his mind all the time. I mean, you go all the way back to Genesis, the beginning, chapter 18, the story of Abraham. Remember what God said? Abraham, have you checked out Sodom? Abraham's like, yeah. 
God said, that's a wicked place. I'm going to destroy it. And Abraham's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just destroy it. What if I find right, 50 righteous people in Sodom? God said, I'll tell you what. I'll change my mind. If you find 50 righteous people, I won't destroy it. And Abraham's like, man, that's a lot of people. How about if I find 45? You ever read this? Good stuff. 45 righteous people. Will you, will you spare them? And God says, all right, if you can find 45 righteous people in Sodom, I'll spare him. Moses, uh, Abraham says, how about 40? God says, okay. How about 30? Okay. How about 20? And God's thinking, you're, you're getting on my, you're getting on my last nerve, Abraham. What have I got to lose? How about 10? And God said, okay, here's the deal. If you can find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy it. I mean, it's a story where God is negotiating with Abraham. That's Genesis. Go to Exodus 32, second book in the Bible. Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God, right? While he's gone, he's gone for a long time. The people think he's not coming back. God obviously struck him dead. We probably need a new God. So under the leadership of Aaron, he says, hey, give me all your gold. And what do they do? They make the golden calf. Remember that? Their, their new God, the golden cow. And, and all of a sudden, they're dancing around and worshiping. And here comes Moses back down the mountain. And God's like, would you look at these people? I've had it with them. This is what he said to Moses. I'm going to kill them all, and we're going to start from scratch. But look what happened in chapter 32, verse 11. Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. In other words, he prayed, verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, I don't know if you just caught that or not, but we just read a verse that said God threatened to do something. In other words, it was his intention. It, it was his desire, but he didn't do it. So did God lie? Is he just being like a parent, you know, when you threaten, but you never follow through? No. We have a situation here where Moses prayed to God and God changed his mind. There's another story uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Jonah. Remember Jonah the prophet? And, and God says, listen, uh, listen, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell those people that they're wicked and I'm going to give them 40 days to repent. And if they don't, I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah's like, ah, uh. see, he's been watching CNN and he knows how wicked you know, that they are over there. And he doesn't want to go over there. I mean, these are the Ninevites. They are known for their brutality. On top of that, he's a bigot and he wants them to die. So he doesn't want them to be saved. So what does he do? Instead of going to Nineveh, he gets the boat to Tarshish, heads to Spain. There's a big storm and the professional sailors on board the boat, aboard the boat are like, what is going on? And Jonah's like, uh, you know what? Seriously, prophet of God, he doesn't like it when we don't do what he says. It's probably me. If you throw me overboard, you guys will probably be fine. So they throw him overboard. What happens? The big fish swallows him up. He finally gets to Nineveh. He makes the first amphibious landing right there on the shore, right? And, and he goes in and delivers the people. God is going to destroy you people in the next 40 days if you don't repent. But were the people destroyed? Mm -mm. Why? Because they repented. In fact, I read just recently, one historian believed that there were 750,000 Ninevites that turned to God because of Jonah's message. And guess how Jonah responded? God is awesome. He is so cool. Nope, that's not how you get to chapter four and he's angry, he, he's mad at God. You know what he said? God, that's why I didn't want to go in the first place. 
I knew, I knew that if they repented and they changed their minds about you because you're merciful and you're compassionate, I knew you would change your mind about them. And that's exactly what happened. And now, God, I look like an idiot. Plus, I'm a bigot, and I wanted them to die anyway. And now I'm depressed. God, just kill me. That's how all the prophets in the Old Testament, every time they got depressed, it was like, just kill me. But understand, was it God's will, was it God's desire to destroy Nineveh? No. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wanted to. See, that's why he sent Jonah. It was God's will and desire for them to come to repentance, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But I'll tell you this, if they hadn't repented, they would have been destroyed. My point is simply this, their will determined their future, not God's will. Now, I know this is freaking some of you theologians out because you've read Romans chapter nine about sovereignty and predestination. In your mind, it's all planned out. You don't need to pray for anybody. If they're gonna get saved, they're not gonna get saved. In fact, you are so, you are so God has determined everything. We don't have any choice in this matter. In fact, God already knows what you're gonna eat for dinner tonight. You may deep down inside want steak, but God's already predetermined you're gonna have salmon. You know, you don't have, you don't have any control over it, right? Somehow you didn't get to Romans chapter 10 where it talks about man's free will. And you know what? With our little pea brain, finite minds, you're an idiot if you think you can figure that one out. If you think you can figure out predestination, the fact we have a free will in this, good luck. You know what maturity is? Getting to the point where you say, I don't understand it all, but I trust God, and I think he'll sort it all out. I just know what I'm supposed to do, see? So that's what's going on. We have a will. There's another example, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah, he was the king of Israel, became ill. It was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die and you will not recover. Pretty final, verse two. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. And if you read the story, God said, okay, I changed my mind. I'm gonna give you 15 more years. And he did. And if you were in, with me in Israel, we just actually walked through the tunnel that Hezekiah dug that went outside the city to a water source to bring water into the city so that when Sennacherib came and set siege to the city, they never ran out of water. It was during that 15-year period of extra time that God gave Hezekiah that he pulled that off. Let me show you one more passage. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. And this is the one that really gets me. God says this, I looked for a man among them, a person among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not destroy it but I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Now understand, this is what this is saying. God is saying, these people were living in rebellion. And so my justice demanded judgment, but my love wanted to show mercy. So God says, I looked around to see if there was anybody that would agree with me. If there was anybody that would go to bat for these people. If I could just find one person who was willing to stand in the gap. If I could just find one person who would pray for these people. God says, I would show mercy. But I couldn't show mercy because I couldn't find anybody to agree with me to have mercy. So God says, I poured out my judgment on them. Now, let me just ask you a question. I wonder in how many areas of our lives God wants to have mercy on us. He wants to show mercy to us, but he can't get us to agree with him. He can't get us to cooperate with him. He can't get us to align with him. He can't, he can't get us to come back in 
the circle. I wonder how many people out there, and I'm telling you, they are as lost as a lizard. They don't have any interest in God whatsoever. But I wonder how many people are out there that God wants to show mercy to, but he can't get anybody to pray for them. He can't get anybody to go to bed for them. He can't get anybody to stand in the gap for them. And there's going to be judgment unless someone is willing to pray, unless someone is willing to stand in the gap. You see, our logic says, there's no use to pray. God can't change. If he wants it to happen, it's going to happen. If it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. But the fact that God can't change his character, the fact that he's immutable, is actually a reason to pray. Because let me show you something about God. God always wants to be merciful. That's his character. God always wants to be compassionate. That's his character. God always wants to be faithful. God always wants to be kind. God always wants to be loving. That's his character. I'm telling you, he can't help himself. So the fact that God can't change is actually the reason to pray. It's not the reason not to pray. So as we think about these attributes, this is why we pray. Since God is the sovereign ruler of the universe and he can do whatever he wants to do, he can and he will answer prayer. Second, since God is already perfect and he could never change his character, in other words, he'll always be compassionate, he'll always be loving, he'll always be merciful, he'll always be kind, that's never going to change. But he can, and he will change his mind. So let me leave you with this question. Have you been praying the way God wants you to pray? Have you been praying at all? Have you given up? Yeah. I mean, just this week, how much time this week have you spent praying over your family? Are you spent praying over your marriage or your kids? How much time have you spent praying over your job, your education, your career, your finances? I mean, isn't it amazing that we want God to do all this incredible stuff in all these areas of our life? We want strong marriages and strong families. We want godly children. We want solid finances. We want strong careers, but we, we never discuss it with him. Isn't that weird? Now, we got this prayer vigil coming up next weekend. This is what I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to sign up. I want to encourage you to show up. I want you to fill out that card and drop it off as you lead our campuses so we can pray for you. But let's just, let's just see what God does. Now, next week, I'm going to talk about the importance of not just talking, but of listening. Because our typical response to prayer is, God, I need this, I need this, fix this, I need this, I want this. But what if God doesn't want to do something or fix something or change something? But what if God just wants to tell us something? But he wants to tell you something that will change your life. So next week, we're going to talk about the importance of taking time, not just to talk, but to listen. Let's pray. God, you're an awesome God, and thank you for this gift of prayer. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we can come boldly before your throne, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. It's, we get to have a relationship with you where literally the word is, Daddy, this is on my heart. And Father, even when I pray and my prayers aren't always answered and they're not answered as quickly as I would like them to be answered, there's something reassuring about knowing that it's on your radar. And Jesus told us over and over in the Gospels that when you pray, be persistent. Be like the guy that goes to the next door neighbor's house and he's knocking on the door, knocking on the door, knocking on the door. And if you just keep knocking, eventually he will just give you because of your shameless persistence. 
Eventually, he'll give you what you want just to get you to quit knocking. So, Father, give us that kind of view of prayer. And may we see it as an opportunity that is so underused in our relationship with you. I look forward to seeing what you're going to do in the series and what you're going to do in this prayer vigil. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of the great things God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download our app to find ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 